Hello, and welcome back to Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro, a podcast all about the Bible, theology, and all things related to the Christian faith. I'm the Ryan half of Ryan and Brian, and this is episode number 46 and our fifth episode of season two. This week, Brian and I are talking about the story in the Gospels of Jesus entering the temple, flipping the table of the money changers, and driving all the animals from the temple. In a lot of our Bibles, the editors have labeled this story, Jesus Cleanses the Temple. I've called it Jesus Cleansing the Temple several times on the podcast, and Brian has alluded that he doesn't like to call it that. So in this episode, I'm asking Brian why he doesn't refer to that story as Jesus Cleansing the Temple and what he thinks the story might actually be about. It's a great conversation. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that you can find us at thebiblebistro.com, on Instagram and Facebook at The Bible Bistro, and on YouTube at Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. We have also set up a Patreon account, so if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support our continued work, you can do that. You can find a link for that in the show notes, but also by going to the website, thebiblebistro.com, and clicking on the link at the top. All right, let's jump right in. Hey, Brian, welcome back to the Bistro. Hey, Ryan, good to see you today. It's good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. It's a good. It's a good day. We've had some snow last week, but uh, it's starting. To, it's a nice day out there actually today. So it is a nice day, except our road. Uh, I mean, we're like in the city, and we're in a cul-de-sac, <laughs> and it's horrible. Right. Like as soon as you get out of the cul-de-sac, you're yeah, fine. But so once you get in there, it's a mess. We we lived for a long time in uh, on a on a dead end road, as they call a cul-de-sac, and uh, yeah, it was interesting. You know the. <laughs> The city would take yes. care of the first, you know, the the main roads, and then they would do the secondary roads, and then if they had time left, they get around to us, you know. It's oh, like, are we going to do something for them this year? <laughs> I don't know. Nah, they'll be fine. They, they, they can figure us, it out. They didn't give us a Christmas present last year, so. Yes. Yeah, so we've had the big snowstorm. Yeah. We've been out playing in the snow. Our kids have been yep. frolicking, getting ear infections. You know, all the things oh, that kids nice. do at this time yeah. of year. Yes. We had, uh, you know, had uh, some neat uh, episodes. We've we've laid down. Got some neat ones coming up. Some really, uh, yeah, some real neat ones. Neat, yeah, really neat. Beaver. I've got my beaver. That, I've got my sweater on. Neat. I've got my sweater on today for those who are listening and can't see. So, uh, well, but, I put on my podcast shoes before we started. <laughs> my slippers. Like Mr. Rogers. Oh, Come on. <laughs> I, I do that's that. That's a deep cut for you. Yeah. I don't know if you're, well, that's a long story. I, I don't know if you remember when I, when I, at my office at Lincoln, I would, I would always have a pair of slippers there that I would change into from class. Did you have a card? So, sometimes I would forget and I'd go to class in my slippers if it was in the same, same building. But anyway. Oh, goodness. Yes. Well, we're back. We're making it happen. We've had yeah. fun episodes, yeah. some neat ones. Yeah. We've got some more neat ones, some fun guests we coming up. We have some up. interesting guests coming up, some repeat, a repeat guest, I will say, and a new guest. Uh, so, yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to keep it coming. But today, we are going to tackle the question yeah. that's been plaguing me <laughs> for a year. Well, and, and I want to know, what is it that bothers you? What, what's going on with this? What's this whole thing? T- tell me what well, this question Brian- is that's been plaguing you. <laughs> This all started when I was eight years old. <laughs> anyway, no, laying on the couch. So we we've been doing this for a while, and you, uh, you you know a lot about the Book of John. I, I've we've talked I've about John. Sev- yeah, a couple days more than more than me by a slight margin. Okay. Um. Anyway, and we have talked 
through it. We've read a book on it, all this good stuff. Right. And during these conversations, at some point, we get to John chapter two. Yeah. And I say something that apparently is deeply <laughs> offensive to you. Now, see, I think you're exaggerating this slightly. I think that, that this, well, okay. this is not the way I understand it. But well, what 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 do you normally well, say? What is how does this well, conversation uh, well, usually go? We usually get to this section John where there John two. It's the second part of okay. John two. I would say the middle section. Yeah, uh, starting verse yeah, okay. thirteen or so. Yeah, verse thirteen, and it. Uh, a passage that in my Bible, and I have always said, and I've heard it said many times, is it's Jesus cleansing the temple. Okay, the cl- and you always, I say it, and then you're like, mm, well, that's, that's, and then it's like, and Jesus, you know, in John 2, and Jesus cleans the temple, and you're like, well, that's not what I say. Well, and it's almost like I this usually, passing. What I usually say is I don't call it that. And, and there's a reason for that. And you're wanting to know it. So what's bothering you is you want to know why when you say cleansing the temple, I, I respond to that. Yes. We're, well, I, I've said it many times, okay. and we've had that response. And in true Brian Johnson fashion, you said, "We'll talk, <laughs> talk about, about that another time. time. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time." Well, now is the time. Okay. There's well, let, no let's future talk time about what, now. what's going on with that and trying to. So Jesus cleanses the temple. No, sorry, the story of Jesus in the temple, flipping, doing some stuff with tables. So what I usually call this is the temple incident, and and. We'll we'll get to that, and I'll try to explain why what my visceral reaction is to when you call it the cleansing of the temple, <laughs> why that happens, and actually I, I think this will be good for for our listeners for a couple of reasons. I think I think they'll enjoy it for a couple of reasons, Ryan. One is I think the information's interesting to me, and it it fits in with what we've talked about other way other times uh, that I think. I think the temple theme in the Gospel of John is one of the central themes. I mean, that's not going to be a surprise to anybody who's been around me for very long or heard me talk about the Gospel of John, that that the temple, and, and particularly presenting Jesus as the fulfilling the the role that the temple had, is, is a pretty important part of what John is up to, I think. Uh, so I think that'll be interesting. But then the other part of this is I thought this will be a good opportunity f- to explain kind of why interpretively what we have going on and even the way we use our Bibles and this kind of thing, because where does it say the cleansing of the temple in your Bible? So it says it in the section break, it, it, like it, it's, it's not part of the, the verse or anything. It's like a that. header. It's some, and, and that's the mm-hmm. thing I wanted to get across. And it's just something to think about. We'll talk about this a little bit more further down in this episode, not next time or later, but <laughs> now, <laughs> but you have to be careful when you pick up your Bibles, the, there are different things we talk about. We talk about we've talked about translations before, but the other mm-hmm. thing is there are what we often will call editions or or versions in that sense. But these are these are editorial decisions that are made by people uh, that have to do with how how the verses are laid out on the page. So, for example, some Bibles have two columns per per page. I don't know if you've noticed this. Some have one column mm-hmm. per page. Uh, we've talked mm-hmm. a little bit about chapters and verses before and how those were not in the original. Uh, the footnotes and those kind of all, all the, the way that those things are, are put in there are editorial decisions. And one of the things that's good to think about is where do those come from? So, you know, when, when John wrote the Gospel of John, he didn't stop at verse 12 of John chapter 2 and then say, okay, now I'm going to talk about the temple incident, I'll say. <laughs> he starts in verse 13. Say it. It, it was all written together and then, and, and then, uh, that those are editorial decisions. Now, well, and 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 I want to hold off for just a minute. So let's talk about just this this account, this this uh, thing in general. 
I, I know we have talked about this in other places. Uh, the first question that, that I think you have to approach, and I know we've talked about this in a different episode, uh, I think you have to ask the question is, did this, and this is talking about in the life of Jesus, did this occur one time in his ministry or two? Because mm-hmm. it's interesting when you compare the Gospel of John uh, to the other three Gospels, we call them you know, synoptics, we've talked about the difference between John and the synoptics. One of the differences that we've noted is that this account of Jesus in the temple is very early in the Gospel of John, whereas in the synoptic Gospels, it, it occurs in what we call the final week. Uh, it, it, it it's kind of the an event that really leads up to his arrest it, and crucifixion. It really is kind of the final, you know, <laughs> thing that kind of gets gets you know the ball people rolling. Upset now. There there are some things about this, and and I'm going to go ahead and tell you. And there are, this makes some people mad, and, and, uh, and that's fine. I, <laughs> people are mad <laughs> this at me be the first time. <laughs> yeah, people have been mad at me before. I can handle it, but but. You know, I I don't think there's any reason to get super upset about this, but I think that historically the event happened once, uh, and and so it, it was. I think John, in placing the story where he does, is making a point. Uh, he, he's making a point about this, and like I've said, the temple theme is central for him, and so I think moving this. Now, there's a couple things I'll say, and and these are not. I've shown a little bit of this at, at times. Uh, these are, again, partly the way I interpret the Gospel of John. Uh, but I think John is primarily writing for people who already know the broad outlines of the, of the story of the life of Jesus. So he's not writing for people that have never heard this story before. Uh, Luke, on the other hand, I think is is writing for people that this is this is a new story perhaps for them, or they they've only recently become believers in Jesus. John, on the other hand, I think is writing for people who who are familiar with the outline. A couple of examples. I so, was, what's that? Go ahead. Yeah. So would it be like a like a Jewish Christian audience? I, I think, or well, I think a Jewish audience, and I think you know, I think his his well, let, look at. Look at what he says is his primary purpose. This is in John chapter 20. Uh, I know you've already got John 2 queued up there, but John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, the very end of of chapter 20. And and actually, here's another example. This is usually set off from the text ahead of it in your your editions. Is there a break between 29 and 30? And the header says the purpose of this book. (laughs) Okay, which I think that's correct. But I don't think it's good to separate this from the Thomas account. I think this is the capstone of the Thomas account. We'll talk about that maybe another time. <laughs> but, Cha-ching! But, I mean, if you have, we should make a bingo game for our listeners. <laughs> but this is an example. This is an example of that again. You know where the header we have to be careful of, right? Now, now here's what it says in 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 this is NIV 2011 NIV. Uh, Jesus performed many other signs. The word say my signs is very important in the Gospel of John. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. We've talked about testimony and how it's very important for John that these things were done in with witnesses. Uh, mm-hmm. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe, and here's the two things, uh, D.A. Carson says it this way, and I think he's right, that that the Messiah is Jesus, that that the Christ is Jesus. In other words, this Messiah that you're looking for is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, and, mm. and the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it seems like at least the author's stated purpose 
and I have no reason to doubt that he knew what he was writing this for, is to, you know, the fancy way we'd say this is to engender belief, right? Is to engender faith. Uh, mm-hmm. He's writing for people in order to bring them into faith, and particularly what he wants them to believe is that the Messiah is Jesus. Now, for me, that seems like a Jewish purpose, right? A Jewish audience. Mm. Uh, right. I've mentioned before that until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, most scholars in the modern period of the Gospel of John, most of them, not all of them, most of them thought that he was writing with a Hellenistic background. Uh, but after the discovery... That is like a Greek, a Greek background. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Greek background. I, I should have said it that way. Uh, but after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Johnny T. Robinson wrote a very, it, to me, one of the biggest articles ever on the Gospel of John. And he, he said that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls show us, and basically that there's a, there's a kind of Jewish dualism that we find there, show us that the background of the Gospel of John is much closer to the events that he he's portraying, that it's a Jewish, that it should be understood as a Jewish background. So you take those things together. If he says, I'm writing this so that you will believe that the Messiah is Jesus, and we see all kinds of ways that he uses Jewish, I've mentioned the Jewish feast before, Jewish practices like cleansing is, is very central to what Jesus is doing. Now, <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier because you were talking about the cleansing of the temple. Right. Cleansing is, the, the Gospel of John is full of cleansing. Uh, but just not here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so exa- I'll give you, all the places to miss it. I'll give here. you a couple of examples. John chapter one, um, uh, that it talks about that the disciples of John the Baptist are, of course, he's never called the Baptist in the Gospel of John, but they come criticizing Jesus' disciples about, and it says they they had an argument about washings, about how cleansing took place. Beginning the first, what's the first half of John two? If the last half is the temple incident, what's the first half? That's the wedding at wedding Cana. at Cana, and you'll know centrally featured in that are six stone water jars, which John tells us, or the narrator technically tells us, are used for ceremonial cleansing. ceremonial cleansing of the Jews. Um, uh, John chapter fourteen, you've got uh, 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 Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Or is it thirteen? 13, John chapter 13, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, uh, cleansing, washing the feet of the disciples. And, uh, you know, Peter, of course, says, you're not going to do this for me. And he says, if you, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, of course, well, then give me a bath, you know, my head, my hands, you know, wash me mm-hmm. all over. And Jesus says, the one who is already clean doesn't need to do this. Uh, two of the pools that Jesus sends people to, the pool of Siloam and the pool of Bethzatha, both seem to be pools that were used for ceremonial cleansing, I believe, or what's called mikvah, mikvahot, uh, uh, that are used for ceremonial cleansing before the people would enter the temple. So, you know, it, it's full of cleansing. There's a lots of cleansing, but it is not. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you what. But it's not in the whole point of this podcast. We'll, we'll get there. So, so right. John is telling us that the reason that he's writing is is for this purpose. Now, the other thing I've mentioned before that that the way I approach the interpretation, particularly the Gospels, is is narratively. Uh, narrative criticism, technically, although there's narrative criticism can mean a lot of different things, so I want to be careful that technically there, there are things that I, I don't do that narrative criticism do, but I try to look at the, at the Gospel of John as a story and understand why John made the choices he did, because you saw that in, in chapter 20, verse 30, I could have written all kinds of things 
John says, mm-hmm. but I've written these. Right. There's there was intention There's in the way that he wrote choice these. in in the in the accounts that he chose to give us. Now, I would also argue along with that that there's also placement that he chose to place this where he does. So I'm gonna I'm gonna show you something narratively you may never have noticed in the Gospel of John that helps me think that this account is the same as the one that took take place. Now there's there's other reasons I think this is the case, but the, one of them is just narratively that this account of the the temple incident early in the Gospel of John is the same one that takes place in the synoptics in the final week. One thing I always point out just to begin with is is if you're going to argue that there was one temple incident at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and one at the end, you have to also explain why John chose not to tell us about the one that takes place at the end. Mm. All four Gospels tell us about one incident. you know, John only tells us about this one, you know, if if there are two. Right. But there's lots of ways that this is connected. And John even, I think, gives us hints that this is connected to, to in the same way that synoptics tell us that this is leading up to Jesus' death. The, the Gospel of John, the author, tells us this is connected to his death as well. But let me show you something. This is an example of narrative criticism or narrative interpretation, I'm going to call it. I don't like the word All right. narrative criticism, but narrative interpretation. Look back. I want to show you some what are called... Uh, narrative markers. Okay. So authors will often give us a hint that they're getting ready to tell us a, a new story or a new account. And John's favorite narrative marker is is a temp, what's called a temporal marker. There's different ways to mark the beginning of an of an account. Uh, I, I was when I think about narrative uh, interpretation, we usually do this with movies and and TV shows. We we are a visual culture, and we've become very. Most of us are pretty good if we've watched enough movies or television, and most of us have. Uh, I know I've watched more than enough television. Uh, we we are pretty good at reading the cue, visual cues that are given to us. I mean, that's that's what you do for a living, right? And and you understand right. that there are certain shots that will speak in a certain way you're you're communicating in the in the uh, video shots that you choose to take when you're doing a a, a video right you, that that's right. what you do for a living and if our listeners don't understand that so um these temporal markers when you start to see them become very obvious there are different kinds of markers that can be used uh oh I was going to use the example that's where I was going with this uh Forrest Gump for example uh he has a marker <laughs> throughout that movie when he's done telling a story. And of course, the other interesting thing, keep Forrest Gump in mind because we'll we'll come back to it. Uh, most movies today don't bore us by telling the story from beginning to end, right? They understand right. we're sophisticated viewers and we want to be interested. So most of the, most of the shows today will have, we usually use terms like flashbacks and flash forwards. So, Forrest Gump, if you'll think about it, the 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 narrative time of the movie itself is mm-hmm. only a little bit of time. He goes and sits down on a on a park bench and starts, park bench. starts telling a story. But then those vignettes or those different accounts in his life are are flashbacks, right? He, he's going back and he's telling, and then he'll come forward. And typically, what's his narrative marker? What am I gonna say? He usually Mama said. What no what go I don't know what you're saying. He usually just, says he usually says, and that's all I have to say about I that. Say about that, right? In end of scene, right? Or it's time for the next yeah. next story. So 
here, here's what the narrative markers are that I want you to notice. Look at, at verse um, nine, uh, 29 is the first one I want you to notice. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 29. Go ahead and just read these for us. Yeah, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So this is talking about John the Baptist. But do you see that how, how that verse begins? The next yeah. day. The very next day. Right, so that's... Now look at verse 35. The next day, oh my gosh, See it? again, John, yeah, I, I, I saw it. That's why I read it with <laughs> emphasis. Look at verse 43. Oh boy, I know I know where this is going. <laughs> the next day, okay. Jesus decided. And, and so you see that, you see he's basically saying this happened, and then the next day this happened, and the next day that happened. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day. Okay, and, and, and third day, by the way, is an Aramaic or Hebrew, Hebrew uh, idiom. That means the day after tomorrow. Uh, a lot of people talk about the third day. <laughs> this is going to raise some other questions I don't want to get into right now. But but the third day means, so this is the first day, tomorrow's the second day, and the day after tomorrow would be the third day. Uh, mm-hmm. So on the third day, uh, day after tomorrow is the way we would say it. In our, that's our idiom, but the, the Aramaic idiom is on the third day. Uh, and, and so you see what's happening is John is giving us these different accounts that are, uh, and, and they all have to do with really the early life of the disciples and the gathering of the disciples is what's going on here to this point. Now, I've given you every temporal marker to this point. I want you to notice what verse 13 says then. This is the beginning of the temple incident. Uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Okay. Now, isn't that interesting? The next day, the next day, the next day, the third day, it was almost time for Passover. Okay. Like there's there's a there's a leap of time it, here. It's and so here's the thing I would say is there there are some people who say, well, this has to be the next. And in fact, they build these elaborate structures sometimes about what's going on with these first uh, accounts in the Gospel of John. And and I think John is very intentional about this. I think he's saying it was time for the Jewish Passover. Moreover, I think we're thinking about the last Passover in the life of Jesus, which is going to cause some other problems for us later down the road as well that we have to think about. But it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I think I've told you this before, but in the Synoptic Gospels, it's interesting that all of them, if we only had the Synoptic Gospels, we only know about Jesus going up to the Passover. We only know one year of his life. And in fact, Luke is very interesting. About halfway through the Gospel of Luke, it says Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, and the rest of the Gospel of Luke is basically him marching toward toward Jerusalem. And so it's this idea of the the Passover, Jesus going up to Jerusalem. And we'll come back and I'll talk about uh, some of these things later on. So here's my old point. My whole point is, I don't think, even though uh, John tells us a story here at, at this point in his Gospel, I don't think he's trying to say that this happened very early in Jesus' ministry. Um, secondly, there is an example. Now, I talked about flash-forwards and flashbacks. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in, when you're talking about a written narrative, you well, you know, we always like to use fancy terms, right? It makes, just makes us feel like we're talking about something meaningful. Uh, yeah. We use the term uh, prolepsis and analepsis. Uh, prolepsis, instead of a flash-forward, Mm-hmm. proleptic a proleptic statement means something that that is looking toward the future okay okay and then an analeptic statement would be what we call a flashback right it's something that that's okay. back before this this time so whenever we're looking at a narrative we talk about what's called narrative time so so there's this time 
that the story is being told, that the account is being given. Okay, that's that's the the timeline of that. Now we all understand when we're talking about a book that that is not the equivalent to the author's timeline. Right. The author is writing at a later period of time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's that, and and often what we'll talk about when we when we're talking about the books of the New Testament, we'll talk about the historical setting, right? When is this book being written? Now I told you I have a little bit of a different view of that than some some people, and I'll say something more about that in just a moment. But I want you to notice John two twenty two right now. Read that. That's just in the middle of this incident. Read just verse twenty two for me. When. Therefore, he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, this is one of the reasons I don't think John's writing for somebody who is just hearing the story for the first time, because, man, he just gave away the ending, right? What does yeah. it say there? Uh, after When he was raised, when he from, was the dead. raised from the dead. So, so you know he died, and he's back again. And it's not, it's not, he's just saying this as a matter of fact. It's not like, you know, some kind of big revelation, some big reveal. This is a proleptic statement. And so he's taking us then to some other timeline, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is stepping out of, out of narrative time. And in fact, this is an example in video, we would call this breaking the fourth wall, right? And, and right. the narrator... Uh, and I think the narrator and the author are the same people. We could talk about this another time if you want. But when, when we're thinking about the meaning of this account, um, when the narrator's breaking in here, he's basically speaking to the reader. And he's saying, not at this time. Jesus said this kind of stuff. Uh, and, and we're going to see what he said here in just a minute. But at a later period of time, after his resurrection, we understood these things. So the author is talking about a time that's neither the time of the writing nor the time of the narrative. Mm. Do you, do you okay. see what I'm saying? It, it, yes. <laughs> yes. So part of thinking about the way narratives work, about the way that, that telling a story works, is, is thinking about these timelines. So what is happening, the author is telling us the story about what took place at the temple this day, whatever day that was, but then suddenly he flashes forward to a time after Jesus' death. Now, mm-hmm. the interesting thing is he's connecting this incident with the death and resurrection of Jesus, mm. the same way the synoptics do. Now, this isn't the only place he does it. Uh, if you look back up in verses 16 and 17, you know Jesus does what he's doing. He quotes this, um, uh, to those who sold doves, he says, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house. We've talked about my father's house a lot already in the Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. One of the few times in the New Testament that that phrase occurs. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written. And, and here there's different opinion on when they remember this. Are they remembering this at the time, or is this, like John says, after his resurrection? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, what does that seem to be a reference to? The idea of zeal for your house will consume me. What what does that seem to refer uh, to? Take his life. I think consume here. Now, it, it, I think this is an example of what, John uses the author uses frequently, which is an intention, intentional ambiguity. So the idea of consuming means I was filled up with zeal for your house, 
but also as the disciples see the response of the Jewish leaders to what Jesus is doing, they're going, zeal for his house is going to kill him. It's going to be, it's going to be the result. It's going to result in his death. The same thing that the synoptics tell us that this is connected to the death of Jesus. Now that's, I would say historically, the reason that I think there's only one incident like this in the temple (laughs) is it's very hard to imagine getting away with it more than once. Um, they they were the second time they've been like oh here he comes again. So this is from the historian Josephus. Um, they tell it. So you might have heard of the Tower of Antonia. It, it was built into the corner. I didn't mean to talk about this, but just a little bit of the historical setting. It was built into the corner of the temple during this period of time, and it was a garrison for Roman soldiers. And Josephus tells us any time there, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a story you're not going to believe in just a minute. Uh, the, Josephus tells us anytime there was a Jewish festival going on, the Roman soldiers would literally come out of the Tower of Antonia and they would stand on the walls of the temple looking down into the temple courts uh, and they would um, basically keep the peace, right? Mm. Anytime there's a Jewish your, festival. Your, your overlords are keeping an eye on you. Exactly, keep during it. this period of time. This is not something that's going to go unnoticed. And it's gonna it's gonna have dramatic results, and of course, you know, uh, we see that in the in the synoptics. My point is, I think we see this in the Gospel of John as well. Now, I know it's a lot so far, and we're just at the beginning of this. But any comments or questions to this point? That yeah. You got? So you're you're saying like there, in your estimation, like thinking about what Josephus has written, yeah. um, that the Roman garrison would be stationed around the yeah. wall, like th- this incident in your estimation, would be likely only to have happened once, partly because of what's textually in there, but partly because, like, socially, the Romans would not have allowed this kind of disruption twice. Like, it would have been—this was a big deal one time. Like, twice would have been like, this is going to stop. I think so. Well, I think they would not have allowed it to happen again. I I think they would have taken care of it after the first time, which, in fact, I think they did. Now— Again, there are going to be people who disagree with me, and I'm I'm fine. I can handle that. But uh, I, I think what's going on here is John is intentionally moving this. So then we have to ask the question: Is if he's telling the story uh, up front, I think he's drawing attention to what Jesus is saying about this. Now, I, I'm going to say this again. I, I believe, and you guys have heard, we have a whole episode on this. I believe that the Gospel of John is very closely connected historically to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem that happened in AD 70, in in 70 AD or AD 70. Um, It's interesting. Um, So I think he's writing soon after the destruction of the temple, and he's answering partly this question, what do we do now that um, the temple's gone? So if you're writing for a Jewish audience uh, and you're trying to engender faith in Jesus, I think what John is doing is he's showing them this was not only something that Jesus knew, but he was really in some way saying, I am fulfilling the purpose of this temple. Go back uh, to uh, uh, the, well, you you have here the statement. Well, we'll, we'll get to this in a, in a little bit, but, but there are other places in, in the Gospel of John where he is essentially saying that Jesus is fulfilling uh, what the temple was about. 
Uh, I've said this to you before. What, what would you what would you say the temple meant to the people of Israel? What what did it? It, it, it was where and uh, they could draw near to God. They drew it near was to where God. His, his a portion of his presence resided there. So I would always say it has to do with it has to do with presence and it has to do with how they draw near. So the sacrificial system freed them from their sins so that they could, with a clear, pure conscience, draw near to God. And uh, you know, in their understanding, it effectively dealt with their sin. Uh, we would, we would, you know, Hebrew writer helps us to think about that a different way. But um, what I think John is showing us is that Jesus fulfills both those purposes. So John chapter one verse fourteen, the Word became flesh and and tabernacled, uh, made his made his presence tent, yeah, it's tented, tented, tented in our presence, and, and so he he became for us what the temple represents. And then, of course, later on, we have all of this about, uh, you know, how do we get to the Father? Well, the only way to the Father is through me, right, is what Jesus is saying. I am the way now to the Father. Uh, if you want to draw near to God, it, 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 it's through me, is what okay. Jesus is saying. So he becomes, he fulfills what the temple represents, okay? Okay, so so if Jesus is the the temple and he is... You know, that let's say this is shortly after eighty seventy. Yes, John. This is this is for people that already uh, knew the the traditional gospel accounts. Yeah. They knew who Jesus was. Um, John has written this very specifically, and you know, if this is about Jesus replacing the temple, how does this? Cl- I'm going to say the word that the cleansing or the uh-huh. flipping the of the tables. How do you see? Yeah. How do you how do you see that fitting in as like? being a part of that story Look at, of that message. Read chapter two, verses 19 through 21. I was going to do this a little bit later, but let's do this now. So, so this is, this is kind of Jesus dramatic statement. And in fact, go ahead through back to 18, because uh, the Jews here, it, it refers to Jewish leaders. I don't know what your translation says. Are you using the ESV today? Is that what you're using? I am. Okay. Go yeah. ahead and read 18 through 20, 21 for me. Okay. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So why does John move it here? I would say what the purpose is, is to make this thesis statement that that the temple is now referring to Jesus' body, that Jesus is fulfilling in his body, in his, and we're going to see in his death, burial and resurrection, fulfilling the purpose of, for which the temple was there. Forgiveness of sins, you know, the means by which we draw near to God, and the presence of God in the midst of his people. Uh, and, yeah, and, so, and ultimately we see that in chapter 14, in my opinion, right. uh, where yeah. he says, I'm going to the cross to, to prepare this place for you. So the the emphasis isn't on the flipping of the tables, but on the is the flipping of the tables to draw attention to it, it's this. it's more than that. I think it's more than that. And, I'll, and I, I'm not. I'll get there. I, whoa, just, whoa, I, whoa! I, I know. I'm whoa, taking. I'm taking. A, I'm taking a. Circ- this is like a slow burn. I know. You know. Well, you know. You you ask. Give the time. You got to savor it. You got to savor. It. This is we're in the book of John. You got to savor it. <laughs> so. So the the Jewish leaders here, and the Jews in you and I, there's lots of debate about how to understand this. But I, I and many others think this is the Jewish leaders come to him and basically says, "What what authority? You know, by why can you do these things? Tell us, give us a sign." And Jesus says, "Here's my sign: destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days." It's another. We talked about this before. It's a misunderstanding when we talked about um, uh, the the book by Kester, the the um, 
uh, symbolism in the fourth gospel. Uh, it's an example of a misunderstanding because uh, they're thinking he's talking about the tip, physical temple. They show that by saying, 46 years we've taken to build this temple, and you're going to do it in three days. And, uh, and, he, and, and John, and here's an example. This is another narrative example. The narrator steps in, looks at the, fourth, clarifies. Looks at the fourth wall, and says he was talking about the temple of his body. And that becomes then the key, uh, that's the thesis statement, I call it, uh, for which we understand then this theme that Jesus is fulfilling what the temple is to represent. And that's why okay. I, think, I think that's why John tells it here. Now, here's the here's what we're really getting to. So let's talk about the cleansing, cleansing of the temple. My primary objection is just the use, simply the use of this title because it's interpretive. Okay. okay. The the use of the title is interpretive. In other words, it, if you call this the cleansing of the temple, you'll never think of it as anything else. You'll think that's what's what's happening here is a cleansing. Okay. Like Jesus is just mad and he's just we we've talked about this a little up. bit at the simplest level. I think calling it the temple incident leaves the interpretation open. We we've talked before about the idea of a hermeneutic. Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a horizon. Perspective. Oh, okay, horizon. Okay. And, and we've talked about in order to come to knowledge, and, and let's define a couple of terms for our for our listeners. Hermeneutic is the idea of uh, how we interpret something. It's, it's, the, it's the process by which we use to interpret something. And and uh, epistemology we talked about is how we know something. And these are very important, very important terms. When we talk about that before, and, and we talk about the use of metaphor as well, what we've talked about is that kind of limits. Metaphor, to a certain extent, gives us a way to understand something, but it also limits that. Mm-hmm. And cleansing a temple is is a metaphor, <laughs> technically, but right. but it limits then. If we if we call this cleansing the temple immediately, it's going to limit our horizons. We can't see beyond that horizon if that's the way we're going to think about it. And so my point is the editors of whatever edition of, of the Bible you're using who've put that as the as the heading for this section have have given us an interpretive framework that we can't get beyond. Yeah, so you're saying it's it's almost like it kind of locks in our brain it to does. see us, it, does. it locks us in to see only one thing and this is the this is the main point yeah. of this section not the the temple or So by calling it, it by calling it the temple incident I think it leaves that interpretive horizon more open. Mm-hmm. And it's it's okay. just an incident. Mm-hmm. However we want to understand that. Now we can understand it's cleansing. I'm going to suggest there's another way to understand this. There are two major ways. There, there probably are others, but there are two major ways most people argue about that this could be understood. One is it's a temple cleansing. So let's let's. I'm going to step back. Let's talk. Let's step away from the Bible for a minute. Oh, and let's just <laughs> whoa, let's bro. Just, let's just talk about the nature of cleansing. Why, why okay. do you? Well, let me ask you this first question first, Ryan. What what kind of things do you cleanse? My body. <laughs> okay. Uh, you cleanse your my body. House. Your what? Your uh, house. Okay. The house. Uh, the dishes. Okay. Um, uh, my mouth. <laughs> soap. Well, um, that's... We, okay. Let's stop. I caught you off guard. I caught him off guard. He can't believe I said it. Let's go back to the anyway, dishes. There's at least one other thing we usually, okay. we usually think about when we think about cleansing. Laundry is the other one, right? So... Let's talk about dishes there for a minute. And both of those are good examples. Laundry and, and dishes are good examples. 
why do you why do why do you cleanse the dishes or why do you we 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 in my in my household from Southern Indiana we call it wash washing but washing why, why do you why do you cleanse the dishes uh, to remove what has previously been on them okay, to make so, them acceptable for the new stomach sacrifice. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's go back to the I'm Bible. Ma- I'm ma- okay, I'm messing him up now. No, no, no. So, so yeah. you're 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 right. I mean, usually when I ask this question, I get one of two things. So, so the most obvious is what you're saying. Well, they're dirty. You know, duh. Right. You, you cleanse right. something when it's dirty. Why do you Why do you wash the sh- the one shirt that you own that you wear over and over again? Why do you Why do you wash it? Well, it's it's dirty. Dirty. <laughs> but here's there's another part to it because that's not the only thing that we could do with something that's dirty. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, why do you clean? Why do you do the laundry? It's because it's it's I I want to use it again. You like want to use not- it again. That's exactly the reason. If mm-hmm. you don't ever want to use it again, you don't need to clean it. So give me, let me give you a couple of examples. We talked about dishes, right? If you use paper plates, most of us do not wash the paper plate. Right. What do we do? Garbage. We throw it away because it's no longer needed. Mm-hmm. It's no longer necessary. It's it's served its purpose, but it is no longer necessary. And uh, so cleansing, when we call this the cleansing of the temple, it, it's the same thing. Just like cleansing your shirt, you, you know the when that shirt finally has enough holes in it, it's falling apart. You can read a newspaper through it. You don't go and wash it one more time. You you pick it up and you go nah, and, and it, it goes out in the trash, right? Right. Uh, or maybe to Goodwill. I don't know, but. but <laughs> You see what I'm saying? You throw it no, out. You, you, no, you get you throw rid of it away. It. Yes, it, it, it no longer has a has. It served its purpose. It had a had a good purpose. There's nothing wrong with it, but it has outworn that purpose. It's no longer necessary. And then you typically go out and buy a new shirt, or maybe you have another another new shirt in your um, in your closet already. So that's the only thing I'll say. There's basically two ways we can understand Jesus' actions here. We can either understand him cleansing the temple getting rid of the, the the problems with the temple so that it can, what would be the implication then? So that proper it worship go, can take place go back to, there. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that can be taking place. The other thing that we can understand is this could be a symbolic destruction. Mm-hmm. In other words, for a period of time, he's putting a halt to the worship in the temple. And thereby, when he's asked what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? His answer is destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. In other words, I will, and, and uh, the narrator tells us, he talks about his body, um, that I, I am going to become, I'm going to fulfill the true purpose for which this temple has been. So maybe like a little bit of a foreshadowing of what I, he's going to do. I would on. call it that, and, and this isn't just me. There basically the two things uh, that people... Proleptic. <laughs> Well, the two, yeah, it could be the two thing that people are thinking is two, yeah, and and proleptic for seventy A.D. is what you're saying. Yeah. So the two ways people understand this incident is as a cleansing, or the other ways as a symbolic destruction. And I, I you know, I'll give you some examples of both. Um, let's go read back and read the first part of this of this account. Starting verse thirteen okay. says when it was almost time. This is chapter two, verse thirteen. 
It was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money, uh, money changers, we, we call them. So he made a whip out of the cords, drove all from the temple courts. I think that all is a, is a key there. He drove basically everyone, everyone. out of the temple. Mm-hmm. And uh, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins and the money changers, overturned the tables to those who sold doves. He said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So the question we have to ask, and people always use this as an example, and we may talk about this if we have time. Uh, Jesus is ticked. <laughs> right? He's, right. He's upset. Angry here. Jesus. And, and so he says, stop turning my father's house into a market. So there are some people who, if you think of this as a cleansing, what he's doing is he's getting rid of the things that are making it unclean, or, or he, he's getting rid of these things. So one of the questions we have to ask is, what are these money changers, and what are this, you know, what are these people doing with this stuff uh, in the temple? What are these people doing here? Well, money changers, and we've talked about this before, were necessary. It's a necessary part of temple worship because the coin, uh, the typical coin, denarii in the day of Jesus, uh, was made by whom? Rome. Rome. And what did it have on it? Uh, emperors. An image emperors. An image of Caesar. In fact, yep. we saw, see other examples of this. You might remember the um, when Jesus is asked about uh, paying taxes or not. And he Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And, and what has his image. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, so the law said you could not take a graven image. You know, the, the temple was not a place for, and it had to do with idols, right? Uh, but they took it to the point that you were not, you could not pay your temple tax. This against part of the law. Every year you're supposed to pay a temple tax. You could not use the Roman coin. So what the money changers would do is they would take those coins and they would exchange them for, um, uh, they're, they're called, uh, uh, temple shekels. And, and interestingly, and we may link to this in the show notes, uh, just this last year, there was a little girl that found another one of these, like a little really? eight, eight-year-old girl or something found one of these, but from the first century. Uh, they had they had images of the menorah on it. They had images of palm leaves and that kind of stuff, but but not a not a human image or an idol, right? And mm-hmm. so they would they would exchange these. Now some people think that they were cheating them. Um, look, do you have your Bible there? Look look uh, real quick over at uh, Matthew. Uh, 21, read verses 12 through 13. This is Matthew's account of the temple incident. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you want to read, what do you want me to read again? Verses 12 and 13 in Matthew 21. Okay. Uh, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. robbers. And so some people think that they were either charging an exorbitant amount or that the money changers were cheating the people, uh, you know, taking a little shaving of the gold so that the the temple coins were slightly less valuable than the, you know, again, if you multiply yeah. it over the number of worshipers that would come up to the temple, uh, you know, some people think that... Be extraordinary. Some people think this is what's going on. Some people think that having the cattle in the temple courts was part of the issue, having the animals there for sale, uh, and that the the excrement was making the, the temple unclean. So those are cleansing the temple, if you think that's the case. But here's what I would point out, is they were selling these because 
uh, you know, when, when, when the law was originally written, people had their own flocks and herds, but as Israel became um, a, a different kind of nation where it wasn't strictly agricultural or not strictly nomadic, it was necessary for people to buy animals for sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Um, so these both, both the money changers and the, the people selling the cattle, sheep, and doves were a necessary part of the worship going on there. In other words, people had to had to use it. Now, the robber makes us think that they were using those positions in order to take advantage of the worshiper. I mean, it's pretty strong. If, <laughs> right. I, if, if I'm standing between you and worshiping God, you're going to pay me whatever I ask, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty strong motive. So, so that they were misusing this position is 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 a very probable a probable part of this. But when he drives everyone out of the temple, including the animals that were used for sacrifice, and overturning the the tables of the money changers for a period of time, for whatever period of time this takes place, Jesus is effectively stopping worship in the temple. No more sacrifices because the animals aren't being purchased and brought up for, and, and so and nobody's able to to go about their to, business. And so again, at least symbolically, he is putting an end to the worship of of uh, in the temple. Now, here's my point: is I think that fits well with the overall message that the Gospel of John is telling us about who Jesus is and the role that he's he's fulfilling, especially. If I'm correct, and others are correct, in thinking that the Gospel of John was written soon after the actual destruction of the temple, and if one of the questions that he's answering is, "What do we do now that the the, the temple's gone?" Um, you know, well, the answer is, "Destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days." Right. right. It, that, uh, that that Jesus again has taken over. He was he was. Kind of a flash forward. The temple's going to be gone. You don't need it anymore. I'm the temple's being rebuilt in me. I am the temple. I uh, talked about this before, but in John chapter four, you have this story of the Samaritan woman, mm-hmm. and uh, when she finally realizes he's a he's a prophet. This is starting in verse nineteen or so. Um, here she says, "My translation says, sir." It's the word's kurios here, which means Lord. Lord, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors, now she's a Samaritan woman. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to actually have an episode about the Samaritans upcoming. Our mm-hmm. ancestors worshipped on this mountain. This is in the village of Sychar near the near the Mount Gerizim. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. There had been a temple there on Mount Gerizim uh, until 128 B.C., uh, it was destroyed by a, a Jewish, a Judean king by the name of John Hyrcanus, one of the Maccabees. Mm-hmm. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Mount Gerizim or Mount Zion? Samaritans believe Mount Gerizim. Jews believe Mount Zion. So what's Jesus' answer? You know, as a Jew, he would probably say, well, Mount Zion. Jerusalem. Everybody knows that. That's what the Bible says, right? Mm-hmm. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, get, remember, John Hyrcanus had destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim in 128 B.C., just 100 and maybe 40, 50 years before this account. And Jesus, I think, prophetically <laughs> is saying mm-hmm. there's a time coming where the temple on Mount Zion is going to be exactly the same as the temple on Mount Gerizim. Torn down. Do you see how powerful that would be for someone who's in the in the 
aftermath of, of the Roman destruction of the temple in 70 AD, kind of questioning everything and has God left us? What you know, what what's going on here? And I think John's answer, at least, the author of the Gospel of John is going to say to us, no, God is his with us in Jesus, that that he is the one, he is the way. Uh, he goes on, he says, 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming that has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So, so I'm just using that as another example uh, of the way that this fulfills it. We've talked about in another place, another episode, we talked about John chapter 7, uh, and how Jesus, again, points to himself in a prophetic statement that there was going to be water in the age to come. Water was going to flow out of the temple in Jerusalem and, and water all of the land, both summer and winter. And Jesus, at the height of the feast of uh, uh, um, the festival of uh, tabernacles, uh, reminds or, or says to the people, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink the one believing in me, as Scripture said from within him, my heart, yeah, will flow rivers of living water, and so um, yeah, my koi loss, whatever you understand there. So, um, so I think it fits well with what John is doing in his presentation of Jesus in the Gospel of John, which is saying he, Jesus is the temple, uh, and and uh, as we've said, and as we've talked about ad nauseum in another place, John chapter fourteen. Then is if John two is the thesis statement, John fourteen is the conclusion of this theme. Uh, mm -hmm. to say that Jesus is a fulfillment of what what uh, the temple was supposed to do. Let me just show you one other additional thing. This is from the synoptics, just for, for fun, and then I'll ask what are the questions you have. Uh, it's interesting if we look at Matthew's account of this, because he actually does a similar thing. But what's really fascinating to me about this is if you look at Matthew 26, uh, I'll let you read 59 through 61. Okay, Matthew 26. 59 through 61. This is uh, the account of Jesus' trial. Okay. Yes. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Isn't that interesting? And that, yeah, uh, that's that's in Matthew, but it's only John that tells us the account when this happened. You see, and again, yeah. are we talking about something that happened <laughs> three years or two years earlier, or are we talking about something that happened that week hmm. publicly? You, probably that week. And then, well, I don't want to maybe I don't want to interpretively make you know put you in a in a horizon. Uh, but uh, but look at verses. Yes. Look at chapter twenty-seven, verses thirty-eight through 40 then. This is one of those details we probably have it, that, that unless we really dig down and spend some time thinking about this, we might just gloss over. All right. So 27, 38 through 40? Yeah. Okay. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, uh, wagging their heads and saying, you who de would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So part of what they're mocking him about you know, you said you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and now you can't even get down off the cross. Now, ironically, I think they're pointing to exactly what he's talking about, that in three days he will, in fact, uh, have defeated death. He will have defeated the cross. Uh, one more, look down at verse 51 then. 
okay. of that same chapter. Okay, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. I should have had you read 52. I, I forgot. But anyway, Jesus uh, cries out with a loud voice and, and you know, dies. And, yes. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. Now, we often interpret that, right, to mean mm-hmm. that what he had accomplished, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, now... I have to be careful I say this, but but essentially makes the, the temple obsolete or 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 you know the Hebrew Hebrew writer talks about that his body is that curtain uh, that we are now able to come into the very presence of God. Whereas in the past the high priest could enter the the Holy of Holies uh, only one day a year on the Day of Atonement and only him. We now with confidence enter into the Holy of Holies, into the most holy place, right? Through mm-hmm. the curtain that is his body. Uh, so we often interpret it, you know, and that's from a very early period. The Hebrew writer is already interpreting it this way, that his death is signifying an end to the the system as it had been, right? Gotcha. And yeah. so I, I think it's not only John who has this. Now, for John, it is a, it is a much bigger theme, I think, but... But I think this is a part of what early Christians believed and thought about uh, what was happening, what was going on. So my only objection (laughs) to calling it the cleansing of the temple is it keeps us from possibly—I'm not advocating let's let's title this the symbolic destruction of the temple, right? Mm -hmm. I call it the temple incident. I'm just saying let's let's not title this in a way— that, Don't pigeonhole it, right? That it's gonna it's gonna limit our our possible understanding, and and so that's that's my and point. yeah, and 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 the headers are all from, and you know the uh, whoever has made that translation, Edi- like they put editors, it in, editors. At, at its yeah. best, we would think that they would, you know, they they probably have a certain amount of scholarship, but if they are the if they are the same, it it it, it depends on. You know, are, are they experts in the Gospel of John, or are they New Testament experts, or are they, you know, translation experts? Uh, who are the editors? You know, and and by the way, you can read that in your in your foreword. It will have a list of the editorial board, uh, but it makes you wonder sometimes. You know, are they up? Have they thought about and studied this this particular passage enough to to make that kind of a determination? Yeah, it, you know those those headers can be so. I mean, they can be somewhat helpful, yes. but also stand in the way all i'm saying is just be careful don't you know they're they are not the word of god they you know they are not um you know they and they can sometimes i'm not saying you have to agree with me i'm saying though calling it that ahead of time doesn't even open up the possibility that something else could be going on here yeah well you know that's uh i got a reader bible a couple years ago and i really enjoyed it you know and because it takes that out i mean i've got chapters in there which again there weren't chapters in the original (laughs) greek or hebrew either um but it takes some of that stuff out and it's just it's a reading experience and the lines are not right you know like and i think that's um i mean that's a different reading experience for me as well like books of the bible that i'd read many times before that read them in a reader when i'm like oh these go together. These sections go together much yeah. differently that now that I have these breaks out or these headers out of there. Right. Um, that I that I read. I read it all differently. Let me, let me give you two examples where I think this can be helpful. One when when I'm teaching a shorter epistle, one of the shorter letter, letters, let's say First Peter. Uh, often I will 
go, I'll take that, I'll put it in a word processor and I will take out chapters and verses and, mm-hmm. and give it to my students, even sometimes taking the paragraphs out, right. And, and have them read through the entire letter in, in one setting. You know, we, we just don't normally do that. And, and it, mm-hmm. there, it, it's a different kind of experience as you're saying, than, than kind of reading, I'm going to read 10 more verses or whatever, you know, and, and uh, breaking up our reading in that way. And I encourage them to read it in one setting. You know, most people are surprised how quickly you can read a book of the Bible. Uh, you know, right. I, I always say read large sections of Scripture quickly, study small sections deeply. But, you know, just reading through, you can read through pretty quickly, actually. Uh, the other example I would give is um, uh, a Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it, it's interesting I hadn't thought about this. Just yesterday was an anniversary, fourth anniversary of a, a student of mine that died tragically in a car wreck. Uh, not a student, a fellow student uh, when I was at college. But uh, Ken was a great guy. And one of the things he did is he memorized large sections of scripture. One of the things he did is memorize the Sermon on the Mount. And he would dress himself as Jesus and he'd come and basically recite the Sermon on the Mount. And and I'll tell you, it's very, again, about 20 minutes is all it takes. But it's very interesting to hear it in that context rather than, again, reading it in Scripture. I'm, I'm preaching on the Sermon on the Mount right now uh, series. Makes me think, uh, every time I, I'm studying it, I think about when he did that for us. I had him come and do it when I was a dean of a week of uh, church camp. And uh, you know, had him do it for the young people. But it, you see things in the connections there that you don't when you're going to read this section uh, this week, and you're going to wait and read the next one tomorrow or the you know next week or whenever. Um, there's connections there that sometimes we can make. So again, that when I'm talking about reading the scripture as narrative, that's what I'm I'm saying. Look at the look for those connections. Look for those breaks. Hear those repetitions uh, because it would have been read. You know. Uh, orally, uh, you know, the or, or listening or the orality, we, we call it sometimes, uh, is, is the way it would originally been done. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for finally answering. So does that, does that answer your question? Do you feel good about it now? Or are you? Well, I mean, I feel fine about is it. Good? Yeah, no, I feel good about it. I mean, it, yes. I mean, I understand why you're saying that it's just, and I think that's an important thing just to kind of go, and, and I think this can be not just for the headers, but like if we're bringing some presuppositions yes. of something, are we limiting what we can see from it? And that's what I'm saying. The way that we interpret, the way that we know things, we need we need to realize we sometimes are are doing that. We we're putting a horizon, if you will, on on our understanding. So it's necessary yeah, and it, it's necessary, but we need to be aware of it. So. Yeah, and I think it's gonna be hard to break. Yeah. You know, I mean like some of those things like, you know, when someone talks about Jesus in the temple, oh Jesus cleanses the temple. It's just like right. it rolls off the tongue like, <laughs> oh yeah, I know what that is. I know what that's about. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I think that that's really good. And uh, I'm glad we could finally answer that question about why you scold me when we talk about it. Well, are you going to say it? Here's the question. Are you going to say it again? Or is it from now on? Are you going to say the temple incident? I have to have some cognitive reprogramming here, Brian. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to try my best. I won't call for the invitation him then. Well, <laughs> I have decided to call it the temple incident. <laughs> Yes, that's where we're going. All right. Well, thanks, Brian. All right. Appreciate it so much. Talk See to you, you next soon. time. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ryan and Brian's Bible Bistro. You can find show notes, links, and more at thebiblebistro.com and find links there to follow us on social media. 
Next week, Brian and I are welcoming back one of our guests from season one, Ryan Burge. As you might recall, in episode 11, we had a great conversation with Ryan about his book, The Nuns, which discusses the data about those in the United States who would label their spiritual affiliation as nothing in particular. If you haven't heard that episode, I would encourage you to go back and listen. In next week's episode, we are discussing Ryan's new book that will be coming out in March, 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. We'll be chatting about some of those myths and what they mean for the church. We hope you will join us for that conversation. Thanks again for listening and sitting with us at the table in the bistro. We'll be back Tuesday.